Okay, so um, I had this thought this week as I've been studying. We can be cow builders or kingdom builders. So that's my that was a thought that came to me, and we'll get to that. Um, let me read to you a couple of quotes from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, that we have been kind of going through. J.I. Packer says, two facts about uh, Jehovah are assumed, if not actually stated, in every single Bible passage. The first is that he is king, absolute monarch of the universe, ordering all its affairs, working out his will and all that happens within it. Now that's quite a thought. We don't like that thought and and the believer has to wrestle that thought to the ground because if he is absolute monarch of the universe, we have some issues with suffering that we have to flesh out. If he orders all of its affairs, we have some challenges with a country like Ukraine being invaded or a woman being raped, a child being uh, born um, still, as we were talking about the other day. And we also have some gratitude to work out because the blessings that we have actually were not the fruit of our own labor, but the fruit of a sovereign monarch. And so, so we have a lot to truly think about, not just in terms of suffering, but also in terms of what we would say are blessings. Um, and I would say our definition of blessing is wrong because actually the blessing is anything that comes from the hand of a good sovereign monarch. So he goes on, though, this is the first fact that is assumed about Jehovah. The second fact is this, that he speaks, uttering words that express his will in order to cause it to be done. Because if he is absolute monarch, then he has to express his will so that it may be done. God speaks both to determine our environment, to determine it, let there be light, and thus we have light in our environment and to engage our minds and our hearts. To engage our minds and our hearts. So he speaks for two purposes, determining and engaging. The word which God addresses directly to us is an instrument, not only of government, the determining word, but also of fellowship, the engaging word. Because he said, let there be light. And then he entered into the garden and said, Adam and Eve, where are you? Because he was engaging them. So God is a great king. It is not his wish, though, to live at a distance from his subjects. Rather, the reverse. He made us with the intention that he and we might walk together forever in a love relationship. Therefore, God sends his word to us in the character of both information and invitation. It comes to woo us as well as to instruct us. And so when we approach God's word, we can consider it an explanation. This is outside of the quote. I exited the quote for a second. Um, Explanation. Why is there light? Because he spoke it into being. Why are there trees? Why is there food? Because he spoke it into being. And also a wooing invitation that he's saying, and I want you. Every 
word is a reminder that he wants us. So it is. it comes to woo us, back to the quote, as well as to instruct us. It is not merely put us in the picture of what God has done and is doing, but also calls us into personal communion with a loving Lord himself. Let me read to you from Psalm 119, a couple of passages that I just wrote down this week. Such a good psalm. And I've told you before about my fervent love for that psalm and belief that everyone should study it for a month um, over and over and over again. Here's a few verses. Your statutes, we're talking about the word. And so when we hear the word statutes, that would take us to the same synonym for your word. Your statutes are the theme of my song during my earthly life. This is my practice. I obey your precepts, your word. Lord, the earth is full of your faithful love. Teach me your statutes, your word. Teach it to me. Confirm what you have said to your servant, for it produces reverent awe for you. It produces reverence for you. This is verse 38 of Psalm 119. I'm going to say that one again. Confirm what you have said. Confirm your word to your servant, for it produces reverence for you. Some translations take the second half of that verse and tweak it a little bit, but I believe that it's accurately rendered for it produces reverence for you. When God confirms his word to us, we can't help but be in awe of him for his faithfulness. This is why when he says, teach me your word, the earth is full of your faithful love, he's saying, when I understand your word and it's confirmed to me, I see your faithful love and I have greater reverence for you. It's a positive cycle. And then he says in verse 39, I walk freely in an open place because I study your precepts. So the psalmist's understanding of God's word is directly associated with his walking freely in an open space. Do you ever feel heavy? Do you ever feel pressed in? The smaller our world becomes, the less awe we have for God because we have either forgotten his word and the fact that he's faithful to it, or we don't know his word and the fact that he is faithful to it. Good morning. Oh, beautiful dress. So, as we consider God's word this morning, I want us to keep in mind these two things, that walking freely in an open place is a result of understanding God's word, and that reverence for God comes as he confirms his word to us, verse 38 and 39. And the fear of the Lord, Scripture tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. And so when we want to walk in wisdom, we must have a reverence for God. And if we want to have a reverence for God, then he has to confirm his word to us. And if we want him to confirm his word to us, then we have to know his word. You see what I mean? So the fact that our God is not just a monarch that rules and determines, but also a God who speaks directly to us in the form of prescription and also invitation matters significantly. It matters significantly. So we know God said, let there be. God said, let there be light. And what happened? This again is going back to J.I. Packer's book I'm reading. Immediately there was light. Seven times more God's creative word, let there be, was spoken. And step by step, things spring into being and order day and night, sky and sea, sea and land, 
were separated out. Green vegetation, heavenly bodies, fish and fowl, insects and animals, and finally man himself made their appearance always done by the spoken word of God. Just let there be. Ponder that. It's profound. No effort. I mean, think about the effort that we put into creating. I, Lily, you're a creative person, angel creative person. Um, I, I think about the effort that you put into writing letters or notes, and you have that tiny, tiny font that you write with. It takes time. And he just said, let there be, and it was. And you think about this person forming in your tummy, nine months gestation, right? And God, for the first human, just said, let there be. And Adam was. So we can't fathom that. But this speaking ability of our God is magic, we could say, right? It's miraculous is really the real word for it. But it's like magic because what he can do is unfathomable to us and outside of the realm of our capability. And it is just with his mouth, just speaking. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. This, just listen to this, by the word of the Lord, not by his effort to go outside and look up into the sky and see the, the, the sun shining so bright this morning against that deep blue and look at that and think he said, let there be, and it was. And Hebrews eleven three says, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. And so the New Testament writers understood this as well and emphasized it. At God's command, the universe was formed. So that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And this is unfathomable to us because we create out of what we can see. We need ink or paint or boards and nails. We even need seeds, right? can't grow a garden without them. Just his command. His word matters. That he speaks matters. 2 Peter 3, 5, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water it is, was obedient to the word of God. Let me look that. Let me look that one up. I have a typo there, and I want to read it to you specifically. Second Peter three five, Hebrews James. Second Peter three five. Here we go. Read that to you again. They deliberately suppress the fact that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and an earth was formed out of water by means of water. By the word of God the heavens existed long ago. So he speaks and it matters. So I want us to look then at, um, I want us to look at the account of Moses and, and why God's speech matters. Good morning. Significantly. You could look at Jeremiah as well when he is called and you might want to take a look at that this week. Jeremiah chapter one. Um, we see that God tells him that he appoints him as a prophet to the nations to speak the words that God would give him. And, um, and then he says that he's going to rule the nations. 
not because Jeremiah was a ruler, he was just a weeping prophet, but because he was speaking God's rule over them. So you could look at that, that account. And Psalm 147, 15 through 18, Psalm 148 also speak. They, scripture describes all that happens as the fulfilling of God's word from changes in weather to the rise and fall of nations. All simply because of the spoken word of God. Wrap your head around that. Try to comprehend that the next time someone talks about the news. When people are afraid and say, like, the end of the world is coming. Like, no. The Proverbs 30 woman woman laughs at the future to come, Scripture says. Why? Because she knows, not because she's productive and very organized and type A, but because she knows who God is. And he spoke. That's why she laughs at the future to come. We don't walk in fear over the future. And when people say these are the worst days or the world has abandoned God, this is what we say. God is sovereign over the walk of people and the hearts of man, including kings and including individuals. This is, this is important that we understand and grasp this. And yet he sits down and invites us to know him personally. And he desires to speak into the personal spaces of our own life. He desires to divide the light and the darkness in our soul. He desires to produce vegetation, not just in the Garden of Eden, but within our soul. Through his spoken word, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If we want to walk in an open space, we've got to walk in his word. So I want us to go, we're going to go to Exodus, jump there. Um, Oh, there's so much rich. Just mark down Psalm 147, 15 through 18, and also 148, 1 through 8. And I'll, I'll read these to you quickly. But he sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. And you can read Psalm 148 and just look at his word and what it does. Um, He's described as the God of truth. Psalm 31, 5 says this, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And so if he speaks, it matters the quality of his speech, right? It is true. In scripture, when we look at this word true, it has a personal meaning, like a human meaning, like that um, it, it's, it is someone who is utterly reliable, utterly dependable, and cannot ever lack that reliability. Um, Isaiah 65, 16 says, Whoever invokes a blessing in the Lamb will do so by the one true God. We hear God is true, the one true God, and we think about that just that he is the one God that's, you know, not a false God or an idol or like a, you know, a Zeus or Aphrodite or we could go back to Greek and Roman mythology. But what, what really God is saying when he says he is the true God is that there is nothing in him that is false. And so that's why we call other gods false gods. But in God, there is nothing false. And so when he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, there is nothing false about that. There is nothing that will ever be compromised about that. That love for you is everlasting. And when he says, I'm not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, there is nothing false. The will of God is always 
the salvation of mankind, that all would come to repentance. The one you love that is so far from God and you wonder if they could ever repent. The will of the one true, unfalse God is this, that they would come to repentance. And so if God is for us, who can be against us, Romans says. No enemy can stand against the power of his name, Romans chapter 8. Why? Because he is true. There's nothing false in him. Um, Exodus 34 verse 6 says that he is abundant in truth. Psalms 108 verse 4 says his truth reaches into the clouds and is universal and limitless. Now there, that's a passage. Psalms 108 verse 4. His truth reaches into the clouds. It is universal and it is limitless. We talk about the currency of the euro being a currency that can be used across Europe. They wanted to create a universal currency and invited America to join in that as well. And we said no. But here's what's fascinating. God's currency, the currency of his speech, is universal. The heavens declare the glory of God, and all people understand that. No matter what language they speak, no matter what culture they grew up in or were born into, and it is without limit. And of course, John 17, you know this, says his word is truth. And Psalm 119, verse 160 says, all, all of his words are true. And so the quality of his speech is that it is utterly reliable. Um, in Psalm 119, the Hebrew word means firm, for true means firm, faithful, sure, reliable, stable, continual. Truth as spoken of a testimony or a judgment. And John 17, the Greek word for truth there is of personal excellence. That candor of mind, which is free from any affection that would change it, any pretense or simulation that would turn it, any falsehood or deceit. It is free from all of that. That matters. It matters because then when we read God's word, we need to understand that this is the universal truth. And if it is the universal truth, and it is without deceit, and it is without falsehood, then this is the thing that we hang our hat on. This is, these are the strings of letters and commas and punctuation on which we build the foundation of our life. The foolish man built his house on sand, the wise on the rock of truth. But we live in a world that insists that it has truth for us. And its truth is glossy and shiny and polished and refined and flavored to the palate of our heart, of our flesh. Flavored to the palate of our flesh. And scented to the fragrance that our flesh likes to breathe in. And so we hold on to it. And we have to understand it's like we're picking up a scoop of sand, trying to grip it. And the tighter we hold, the more the grains fall and they can't even be captured. This is not that which we want to build our house on, but we have to learn to discern the speech of our Father and listen for it. Listen for it by the power of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives when we're not reading the Word. And then when we are reading the Word, We have got to approach it from a posture of, I'm going to hear 
and obey. As James said, don't look into the word and be a hearer only, but a doer. Otherwise, it's like you're looking into the mirror and you see what you look like and you walk away. So we have to respond. We have to approach God's speech from a posture of a willingness to respond and yield. We have to ask ourselves continually. We have to cultivate the discipline of asking ourselves, am I willing to yield today? Otherwise, don't even bother approaching. Don't even bother approaching because all you will be then is just a puffed up like popcorn when it pops doesn't produce can't produce a plant anymore that corn kernel is no longer valuable when it's puffed up cannot produce more fruit okay um i told you we're gonna go to to exodus i want to look let me just fast forward myself through some notes here so i can might go back to some of that just, we're going to fly through Exodus, fly through, starting, we're going to, we're not even going to cover all of it. I wanted to cover every bit of it, but we couldn't. Just go to Exodus 12 really fast. <clears throat> Genesis, Exodus. I want to look at Moses' life. Moses is a man, okay, who we, we, we have to understand a little bit. This guy has some legitimate history. He knows he was rescued out of a basket in a river. He knows that. And he was nourished by his mother during his verbal years. And so we are confident that she taught him about their God, Yahweh. We're confident of that because she was a believer. She trusted the Lord with him. And um, he, he was, his existence was truly a miracle. And so Moses knows that he exists at the hand of the providential hand of God. He knows that. Can't deny that. He knows it. And of course, we know also when we look at Moses' life, he, it wasn't always successful. He eventually, you know, commits a murder and then he escapes into the desert and kind of builds a life there, becomes a shepherd, marries Zipporah, and they have a life. So we've seen him see the goodness of God, the protection of God, the divine sovereign hand of God in his life. But we've also seen him kind of cower and hide out a little bit. And um, so we have a man who definitely is confident of God's existence, but he is going to learn about the speech of God. And so you know what happens in Exodus. We enter this story in chapter 12 after the continual plagues have gone. He's, He's met up with God. Moses has met God at the burning bush and God told him some things there. Okay, again, heard some speech from God. And he has seen God then be faithful, plague after plague after plague. I will do this, and then God did that. I will do this, and then God did that. And in Exodus 12 and verse 25, this is where he talks to Moses about the Passover. What In this final plague, what's going to happen? And he says, um, verse 24, you must observe this event. He's given him all the instructions of what Moses is going to have to do with the people. He says, um, as an ordinance for your, you and your children forever, for when you enter the land that the Lord will give you, and then he says this, just as he said, you must observe this ceremony. And so God in this moment is saying to Moses, remember, when you enter the land, you're going you're gonna to observe this Passover ceremony. But remember when you enter there. I told you you would enter there. Pharaoh has said no over and over and over again. Your people have been oppressed for 400 years. You've been slaves. You've been brick makers. 
And so far, Pharaoh, no matter what I throw at him, a river filled with blood, beds filled with frogs, gnats filling the air, no matter what I throw at him, he's still saying, no, but you will enter the land just as I said. His speech. What is the just as he has said to you and I that we apply to our lives daily and that we take into our workplaces and take into our marriages and take into our parenting and take into our relationships and our friendships and our college and our plans? What is the just as he said? I think of one that I have to walk in daily. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I do not need to walk in bondage, not emotional bondage, not mental bondage, not physical bondage, because I will know the truth and the truth sets me free. That's a just, as he said to me, that I walk in. Another, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Romans 8, another, just as he said, I am more than a conqueror. I'm not defeated. I don't walk in defeat. I don't live in defeat. So go now to to Exodus 14. Okay, so here, um, let me kind of just read quickly to you. Verse 8 tells us that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh again, and this is when the firstborn has died, and Pharaoh's like, I'm still mad, and he goes after them. And so you have the entire army of the most powerful nation, Egypt, chasing down this million-plus is group of Israelites wandering, walking. They're hurrying, I'm assuming at this point. They're not wandering yet. They're hurrying. They've got kids. They've got their baggage. They've got whatever they could carry. Not an easy exodus. Pardon the pun. And so this is, this is where we're at. Verse 10. When Pharaoh gets closer, the Israelites look up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified. Understandably, life can terrify the heck out of us. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in this desert? What in the world have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Just leave us alone. We'll serve the Egyptians. We'll just live in bondage serving an earthly king. Leave us alone because it's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. See, they're... they're, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the, the Israelites, though Moses had seen the providential hand of God, the Israelites had not yet. And 400 years, they had spent being slaves to bondage. And so often we speak out of our, our experience as slaves. Slaves to sin, slaves to fear, slaves to insecurity, slaves to uncertainty, slaves to our culture. We speak out of that. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord that he will provide for you today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you can be still. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. And as for you, lift up your staff and extend your hand toward the sea and divide it, so that the Israelites may go through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And as for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will come after you, that I may be honored. God's speech always has a purpose. This is the purpose, that he may be honored. Because of Pharaoh and his army and his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. 
God's speech always has a purpose, his honor and his fame. That's his glory. That's the definition of his glory, honor and fame. When I have gained my honor because of Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, the angel of God who is going before the camp of Israel moved. So let me just say this. We've got verse 15. What does he say to Moses? Lift up your staff and extend your hand toward the sea and divide it so that Israel may go through on dry ground. It was a sentence. God's speech in that moment, his instruction was a sentence. God, what's the battle plan? What's the strategy here? Here's your strategy. Lift up your stick and divide the sea. It takes a person who knows the sound of the speech of his God to obey that battle plan. Lift up your stick. That's it? You want us to like circle up, put the kids in the middle? God doesn't even speak about that because it doesn't matter because he is going to divide the sea and he's going to be glorified. So, so the angel of God was going before the camp of Israel. He moved and he went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved before them. So we see now immediately this whole pillar. We remember we had the fire and the cloud. God is already constructing supernaturally, moving a cloud. So he's moving weather systems Literally, he's fighting for his people. It came between the Egyptian camp and the Israelite camp. It was a dark cloud, and it lit up the night so that one camp did not come near the other. The whole night. They got a, they got a night of time. God bought them that time. Moses stretched out his hand toward the sea, and the Lord drove the sea apart by a strong east wind all that night, and he made the sea into dry land and the water was divided. So the Israelites went through the middle of the sea on dry ground, the water forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians chased after them and you know the story, but this is what I want you to see. God said it'll be divided and it was divided. When God says something, it is entirely true. This is important. I know y'all know this account. I want us to revisit it though because we have to believe that what he tells us in the New Testament as the church is true. What he reveals to us in the Old Testament about his character is true without falsehood, without deceit. And if it is without deceit, we hang our hat on that. And so when you have questions, you've got to say to yourself, excuse me, what am I hanging my hat on? If you're not suffering today or facing a hard thing, you will. One minute life is good, the next minute you find out there's something going on in your family. You will. You have to know the sound of your father's voice so that you can locate it quickly and attach to it in those times. You have to have rehearsed the truths of his word so that his spirit can remind you of them and call them to utterance and teach you what they mean in the crucible of suffering, in the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't at peace in the fiery furnace just because. They were at peace because they had already practiced trust and obedience of God's word. And remember Psalm 119.38. When you confirm your precepts to me, it produces reverence in me. If I have a reverence for something, I have a healthy fear. You know, I have a reverence for lightning. So I don't go outside and stand on a sheet of tin in the middle of a storm. I have a healthy fear. I know what is capable of. I have a reverence for snakes. So I kill them quickly and swiftly. I don't want to be bit. It might be a little 
bordering phobia, but that's another conversation. Okay. Exodus 19. So let's fast forward. So these people now, they have experienced the faithfulness of God's word, right? They walk across. They had seen the plagues. They'd already seen over and over and over again a little bit that what God had done. But now they literally see him open up a sea, seas into highways, right? As the lyric of the worship song goes. And the Red Sea Road, as Ellie Holcomb wrote. So now verse chapter 19, we move forward in their lives a little bit. If I can get there. Y'all still with me? Our God speaks. That's what we're talking about. In case you forgot. All right. I'm supposed to read these entire chapters. Okay. Exodus 19. In the third month after the Israelites went out of the land of Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they journeyed from Rephidim, they came to the desert of Sinai, and they camped in the desert, and Israel camped there in front of the mountain. So here they are. They're out of their... They're free. Egypt not chasing them anymore. And they come to Mount Sinai. And we know what happens here. This is where the law is given. So Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And I just, Moses was a lucky dude. God talked to him. That, just amazing to me. Like he really was so, so blessed. Um, So God calls to him from the mountain. Thus you will tell the house of Jacob and declare to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I lifted you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What a beautiful passage. What what speech of God will take you and lift you out of your circumstances on eagle's wings? Not physically. He rarely removes us from our physical circumstances but spiritually speaking, so that your soul experiences freedom, which is what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 39. I live in an open space freely because I understand your word. So you yourself saw what I did. Now, if you will diligently listen to me and keep, listen to me, that's what he says, right? And keep my covenant, then you will be, you will be my special possession out of all the nations for all the earth is mine. I don't know why they needed that reminder. All the earth is mine. He's the one that created it. But in that culture already, a pharaoh thought that it was his, right? And we live in a world where we begin to buy into the cultural lie that the earth belongs to this country that's powerful or this country that has nukes or this country that has the most money or, and you fill in the blank. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to Israel. So he's like, this is what you're going to say, Moses. So Moses came and he summoned the elders, verse 7 of Israel. He set before them all of the words that the Lord had commanded him. Moses valued God's speech and he shared it verbatim. And all the people answered together. Listen to what they said. All that the Lord has commanded, we heard. We heard his words. Then they said this, we will do. So Moses brought that back to the Lord. This is what they said. They said, they're going to obey you. They're going to do what you said. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and so that they will always believe in you. So again, he wanted them to hear. So God said, tell the people this. So Moses went and told them this. And the people said, sure, we'll obey. And God said, "Mm, you know what? I'm going to take this a step further. They need to hear me. They need to hear me. This is an interesting little exchange. It's almost like you would just pass over it without slowing a bit. We tend to take secondhand speech as truth. 
instead of firsthand speech. So how do we do that? What do we do? Blogs, podcasts, books, other people's words, other people's hearing of God. They heard from God. I don't doubt that for a second. Godly, godly people. But we tend to attach ourselves to that instead of stilling ourselves and making ourselves do the work of digging into God's word and chewing it ourselves. I would much rather share what God has taught me from my personal time with him than take in what God taught someone else. So then you say, well, why should we come to Sunday school then? (laughs) Or why should we listen to a podcast or read a book? Because the I'm not diminishing the reality that the body of Christ, that scripture says when you come together, you come together with a psalm, a hymn, a spiritual psalm, song of praise, that, you, that we um, use words that are useful for encouraging others and that we exhort one another. Scripture says God gives people the gift, the divine gift of teaching. So I'm not saying that we don't take that in. And I think you know what I'm saying, and I say it almost every week, but your priority is not someone else's second-hand hearing. Your priority is first-hand hearing. And if you want to, you know, leave this place and go into the world, however that looks like, some of you may stay right here forever, but for those of you who will go into other places, if you want to be life-giving where you go, you have to abide. And we don't abide in someone else's experience of God. We abide in our own experience of God. So it's important. Okay, so that was a little exchange where are we at. We're going to run right out of time. Makes me so mad. Okay. So he said, I'm going to come to come to them. I'm going to be in a cloud. This way they can hear me. And then they're going to believe you because they heard me. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and make them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people and you must set boundaries for the people all around the mountain saying, take heed to yourselves. Do not go up on that mountain or even touch its edge. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. No hand will touch him, but he will surely be stoned or shot through. Whether a beast or a human being, he must not live. Not even an animal could go near that mountain. God is just expressing to them, like, you're going to hear me, but I am holy. I am so set apart. You can't even touch the mountain on which my presence is dwelling. So set apart. Why is he set apart? Because there's nothing false in him. Because he is supreme monarch. Because he is the only wise king. Because he is the source He's the source of all that we can see or understand. And so when he speaks, if we can't even touch him, man, listen. We got to take it in. I think about the presidential address, the State of the Union. Did any of you guys watch that? You should all become watchers of the State of the Union, the presidential address. It, I, I love the State of the Union address. It does not matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat that gives it. I'm like, yes, we're strong. They always. The purpose of the State of the Union address is to basically tell the country this is the State of the Union. But ultimately, it's, it's really much more about marketing. He's spinning it, no matter who the president has been, is spinning it to say we're strong, we're good. And the nation is one of the most t- watched things that you'll find on the airwaves. Why? Because people value what the president has to say about the state of the United States of America. And they always end it with something like this, that, you know, 
the state of the union is strong or the state of the union is good. And then they say, and God bless America. Um, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because we, we will listen to the words of a president and we understand they carry weight. But if I met that president in person, I could shake his hand and they could not even touch the mountain on which God dwelt. Okay, so that gets into his holiness. What time do y'all have to go down? Y'all are singing this morning, right? You have a few minutes? Okay. All right, we'll keep going. Okay. So then Moses goes down from the mountain to the people and sanctified them. They washed their clothes. They did what they were supposed to do. And then verse 16, on the third day in the morning, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud on the mountain and the sound of a very loud horn and all the people who were in the camp, they trembled. Um, man, if we would tremble a little when we open God's word to think we're going to hear him speak, you know, we don't tremble, right? Like I just cozy up with my slippers and my coffee and feel warm and cozy. They did not feel warm and cozy. They felt terrified. He is fixing to speak. What if we approach God's word, our time in God's word with a trembling, like, Lord, give me a trembling of soul that I recognize you're going to speak to me. And you might speak to areas I don't want to be spoken to about. You might tell me things I may not want to do. Tremble a little when you approach God's word. In verse 17, so Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their place at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and its smoke went up like the smoke of a great furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. It makes me think about a volcano. That's really, to me, what I think we're seeing here, something similar. And when the sound of the horn grew louder and louder, Moses was speaking, and God was answering him with a voice. So Moses is speaking and God is answering with a voice. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, so understand this too. God is holy and the people could not touch that mountain. They were sinful. They were sinners and they had not been sanctified or washed or clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so they had no access to God. But God made a way for Moses to have access to him. And, and this is just a reminder to us that we have access granted by the death of Christ. And so we should approach the speech of God with trembling, but also with gratitude that we have access. Therefore, you can approach the throne room of grace boldly, Hebrews says. The Lord said to Moses, go down, solemnly warn the people, lest they force their way through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Let the priest also who approach the Lord sanctify themselves. Let the Lord break through against them. So he's warning them, like, you better be careful. And Moses said to the Lord, The people are not able to come up to Mount Sinai because you solemnly warned us. Set boundaries for the mountain and set it apart. So the Lord said to him, Go, get down and come up and Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people force their way through to come up to the Lord, lest he break through against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And God spoke all these words. I, and here's what God says. I, the Lord, am your God. You came from a polytheistic place where the Egyptians worshipped cats and all manner of other gods. And he says, I am your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the context in which we get the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water below. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, responding to the transgressions of fathers by dealing with children to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, showing covenant faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the very first thing he says is, I am your God, don't have other gods. That's God's speech, and it's his speech still to us today. What are our other gods? And then he says, so these carved images that other nations worship, you're not taking one of them for yourself. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the carved images, right? We don't walk around with a carved image of a cat like the Egyptians did, a relic that they would hold in their hand to worship. But what do we walk around with that we worship? And then he goes on, verse 7, you will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We think about that as like, don't say, oh my God, when I was growing up. Um, you know, that was the thing. A Christian is never allowed to say, oh my God, or, or anything like that. That's taking God's name in vain. This is taking God's name in vain. That I would say, I'm a believer, and then walk in unbelief. That's taking God's name in vain. What's God's name? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who will provide. What's God's name? Jehovah Nisi. What's God's name? Hesed, the God of mercy, the God who heals, the Lord our righteousness, the Lord our banner. These are the names of God. Whoa, we take them in vain. And we don't even speak them out loud. Certainly we shouldn't say, oh my God, I'll, I'll hold to what my mom taught me as a kid. But taking God's name in vain, it's saying I believe in him and walking in unbelief. That is taking it in vain for granted and then he says you're going to remember the sabbath day and keep that holy because just in case you forgot i spoke for six days and created and then i rested and so you're going to do the same why because you have to set something apart so that you'll have space to absorb and take me in we would do well to practice sabbath And not just church for an hour and then go spend Sunday however we want. What would it actually look like to take a day and set it apart to remember the names of God so that we wouldn't take them in vain throughout the week? And then he says, you're going to honor your father and mother. If you do that, you'll live a long time in the land that God is giving you. He reminds them, you're not going to be a murderer. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal. And you're not going to give false testimony against your neighbor. By the way, you're also not going to cover, covet your, what your neighbor has or your neighbor's wife or their donkey or their servant or anything else, he says, that belongs to your neighbor. <laughs> I love that he kind of covers all the things. And basically, the donkey is like the mode of transportation. The wife is the, like the hot wife. The, uh, the servant, you know, like you're not going to covet the fact that your neighbor has a house cleaner. Um, and then he says that anything else, by the way, that your neighbor has, you're not going to covet. When we covet, see, he's, these commands, he's giving them because they're going to have a good life if they listen to his words. Remember, this is God speaks, and these are the spoken words of God that he let them hear. Remember, he said, I'm going to let them hear these. Later, they come down the mountain on a stone tablet, but he said, I want them to hear these. So the people are seeing the thundering and the lightning, and they're hearing the sound of the horn, and they saw the smoking mountain. And when the people saw it, they trembled with fear, and they kept their distance they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but please don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, 
Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him, the reverence of him, may be before you. Why? So that you do not sin. That we would have a reverence for God's speech. Why? That we would not walk in sin. The people kept their distance, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So um, we're going to stop there because obviously we're out of time. We're going to have to continue next week. And I really wanted to get to the point of taking you all the way through Exodus, but we're not there yet. So that's okay. This is what I'm going to say to you. The people kept their distance, but Moses, the scripture says, drew near. And we'll see what happens next week. He drew nearer to the speech of God. The people kept their distance. Why? They were a little afraid. They thought they would die. I think we keep our distance from God's speech because we too are afraid. We're afraid that we will have to die to self. I think that's probably the top reason that we don't truly listen to the God who speaks. Because if he speaks to me, he just might tell me something I don't want to die to. The only freedom that's found, though, is in knowing the truth, hearing his speech, and then walking in it. He may ask us to release something. He may ask us to give something up. But here's what we've got to understand. Anything he asks us to release is a bondage, whether we can see it as that or not. Their life in Egypt, they didn't know even really the level of their slavery. They had nothing to contrast it to. 400 years, they had no generation. It wasn't like their grandparents had it different. This generation, they didn't know the difference. It's all they knew. Often that's true of us too. So we can't identify the very thing that he's asking us to release. We might think it's secure and safe. What we know and it's good. So this week, my challenge for you, and we'll go downstairs. Approach the mountain at which God speaks. And I would say that this is the mountain, God's word, which he speaks. With trembling, but confidence that as he brings to pass what he reveals to us in this word, it's going to produce a reverence in us that gives us a total confidence that says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him because he is a good king. And his desire is to know me and me to know him and walk in freedom. He's going to take me to an open space. He's going to take me to an open and free space. Lord, let your word be so in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.